But we're going to turn to God's Word in this time. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Before, though, uh, we, we read the word, before we, we, we hear it here as it's preached, let's pray uh, for God's Spirit to be among us and helping us to not only hear and to understand, but to be changed also by it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word. Uh, we come every week and we hear from it. Uh, we open it up throughout the week. And it's easy to sometimes be distracted from it. It's easy sometimes for us to miss the power that's in it and to forget that this is you, the very word of you, the eternal God. And so would that not be a time of, of rote or repetition or of just words being spoken, but where these words, though, go forth with your power, Lord God, because they are your word. Would they have their effect in us this morning? Uh, maybe we need to be brought to our knees. Uh, would it, your word do that to us, but then lift us up there again to see the beauty of Jesus for us? Uh, maybe we need to be brought down and we need to be, uh, uh, again, be brought up from, from the dust by the, the beauty of Jesus as we have here. Maybe we need to be refocused. Uh, maybe we need to be, uh, behold again your majesty. Whatever it is, you know where we are, Lord God. And your spirit goes forth here. And your spirit knows how we need to all have this word applied and given to us. And so we desperately pray for that in this time. We thank you that as we come before you, that you do not just leave us dry and dusty, but that your word does not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. This is the word of God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, being Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they, then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. Well, how do you measure spirituality? What are the metrics by which you can measure a truly spiritual person? So that you can look at someone or look at yourself and see how they stack up on the scale of being spiritual. And then maybe consequently provide a plan for how to better your spiritual life. So how do you measure this? Well, people throughout history have proposed all sorts of answers. In the days of the ancient church, one of the most common became living with incredible discipline. It was a costly discipline. Now, one example was extreme asceticism. Putting aside the demands and temptations of the world 
and usually then by going off and fleeing into the desert and living alone. And there you had nothing to do but to live a mendicant life in dependence upon God and engage in meditation and prayer. You can read all sorts of these fantastical stories of ancient church fathers going off and living in the the desert and doing battle with the spiritual forces all alone in the middle of the desert. But another common method, though, in that era was through celibacy. The best way to live unhindered to God was not by not tying yourself down to a wife and family and fighting to rid yourself of carnal desire. And these became marks of spirituality. Individuals were venerated and lifted up by their examples of pushing aside all their own desires for the sake of God. But then, as history marched on, the medieval church's spiritual metrics were similar, but they took on a slightly different tone. Instead of retreating into the desert, people joined monastic communities to engage in a life of study and contemplation. And instead of a distinct individual idea of self-discipline, it became communal. As everyone shared in life together under a common monastic book of rules. It was still this way of fleeing the world to devote oneself to discipline. But at least you weren't alone. And yet this spiritual discipline also though became physical. In order to subdue their sinful bodies, people engaged in self-flagellation where they would literally beat their bodies in submission to holiness, scourging their backs with whips and harming themselves in an attempt to quell their desires or to punish themselves for the sins that they had committed. Again, a spiritual person here could be seen by the marks upon their backs. Now move forward a little bit more to the period after the Protestant Reformation and people continued to pursue spirituality through discipline. Methods of holiness were sought after. Uh, In certain uh, Puritan circles, it was all about strict living in order to devote oneself to God. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard the definition of a Puritan. I've heard it been said that someone who's upset that someone somewhere is having a good time. Um, But later on, though, especially in early America, spirituality was seen as people devoting themselves to works. Now, some of them were helpful, like starting missions or mercy organizations. Others have a complicated legacy, like moral societies and temperance movements. So why do I bring up this brief, and yes, I'll admit, probably overgeneralized history lesson? Because all of these historical answers on how, to, uh, on how spirituality has been measured, they mirror the practices that are referenced Right here in our text, the practices of John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees that we read. Now, the disciples of John were those of John the Baptist. And as John lived a simple life in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus, the coming king, he called people to repentance. And we, re- we read earlier, we read actually weeks ago in Mark that he was arrested and that his time was over in order to make way now for the king, for the Messiah to, to, to go forth with his, his ministry. Uh, but then his, dis- his followers, his, disciple, though, his disciples continued in the same practices of going off and living in ascetic lives in the wilderness. 
and themselves then taking part in practices that express their contrition. It was a life of self-denial away from one another, away from others, and disciplining oneself. And then we have the Pharisees and those who followed their practices. They did so as an expression of piety or of righteousness. But a piety that was really only seen from the outside because it was an over-reliance upon ritual. It took on an almost cold mechanical tone. And you had to live in strict accordance to the law. And in doing so meant you had to put up walls so you wouldn't cross over the boundaries that the law said. And of course then, to avoid getting close to those walls, what'd you have to do? Put up walls around those walls. And so forth. And so with all this here, it turned into a life of rigid discipline. Keeping yourself in check in order to maintain your spiritual standing. Now this all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right From that brief historical inter- uh, overview I gave before. It just goes to show that there's nothing truly under the sun, right? When you boil it down. And so here also in our passage, the focus is on the practice of fasting. Right away, verse 18. These people come to Jesus and they ask, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? But the issue at hand here wasn't on fasting per se. It was on spirituality. Namely, how can it be measured? Both John's disciples and the Pharisees engaged in a lot of fasting. The Pharisees would fast twice a week. John's disciples did so regularly, just as part of their lifestyle. Do you know how often the Jews were commanded in the Old Testament law to fast? Once a year. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so the fasting of the disciples of John was done with the purpose of ascetic deprivations. And for the Pharisees, it was a sign of their religious devotion. Now, stepping back, though, we see that there is something deeper to the question that these people asked Jesus. Fasting wasn't the main issue here. It was merely a foil for a greater question. And it's this. How can you be truly religious, Jesus, if your followers don't participate in all this extra-religious practice? The heart of the issue that they're getting at is what is the essence of true religious devotion and spirituality? How can you measure spirituality? What makes a spiritual person? What practices are indications? How can it be measured or quantified? And of course, the same question hasn't only been asked throughout history. It continues to be asked by many Christians still today and answered in various ways with various metrics. Some approach it through spiritual disciplines of whatever variety. Others have done so by participating in renewal movements. And more recently, it's oftentimes seen through activism or, or um, implementing a Christian vision of society so that a more spiritual person will be on the front lines of social issues than the lukewarm per- believer who's looking from the sidelines. In reform circles, theological depth and understanding is often confused for true spirituality. And like fasting here, none of these things in themselves are wrong. Spiritual discipline and spiritual renewal is good. Activism is noble. Theology matters. But why are they pursued? And have they become the barometer that we use to measure the spiritual atmosphere of a church 
or of her people? The question at hand, the question that's being asked in our text here, isn't a thing of the past. It's just as relevant for us now today. The common thread throughout all this spirituality is that it's works-oriented. And we may not like to hear that, but consider this. Whatever rubric we use to determine or to measure a person's spirituality based upon their activities, what is that? Something that we can point to and put on the scale, that is works-oriented. And it just shows to show that ritualism can take all sorts of forms. So is this how spirituality is measured? Yet often our metrics or our criteria come from our own aspirations. And that's only natural, isn't it? We build criteria on what we're familiar with. Besides, we want to feel good about ourselves too, right? But what are we to make of those who may not think like us? Or those who are gifted in different ways than us? Or what about those who are unable to perform according to our measurements due to life circumstances? Are single moms lower on the spiritual scale because they have so little time to devote to extended Bible reading or study? Are elderly folks uh, less spiritual because of their inability to go out and be involved in activism? Well, here, though, is Jesus' answer to their question on measuring spirituality. This is what he says in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, what does this have to do with anything? This is one of those answers that Jesus gives where you're like, I think you're answering the question, but I'm not exactly sure how you're answering the question. Well, it gets at an answer here that it goes to an answer that gets at the heart rather than a reliance on rituals. Jesus describes himself as a bridegroom coming to his wedding. We read earlier in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 61, and God's self-description of his coming to redeem his people is like how a groom approaches his wedding. He comes glad. He comes not burdened. All right, when you see a groom crying at the altar, it's not because he's bummed out because he has to marry the, the bride. He's happy. He's overjoyed because this day that he's looked forward to has finally arrived and he is in so much love with her. And when Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, it's a veiled way of him saying that he is the God, the God of Isaiah 61, who has come for them. He's come to redeem them from their ashes and he's come to dress them up in beautiful robes, in royal robes, and to, and to put a beautiful headdress upon them. God's promised redemption, he says, is finally here at this time. Finally here now in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming in, in the flesh uh, to take his people as his bride and to redeem them as was promised. So then, like at any wedding... The guests can't not celebrate. I don't know about you, but I don't know how to do anything but celebrate at a wedding. I'm there because I'm happy that the bride and the groom are uniting themselves in marriage. All right, I laugh. I go for a second piece of cake. I don't dance very often in everyday life, but if you want to see the horrid sight of me dancing, maybe you should see me at a wedding and you might get a chance there. 
But it's, it's the, the, the point of all this, it's a time not to fast or to hold yourself back. It's a time to celebrate, eat from the food, drink from the wine. So Jesus says to laugh and dance because the bridegroom of God to redeem uh, his people is here. And like at any wedding party, the appropriate response to the redemption of God having come, this era of his promises being fulfilled, is joy. It's not time to fast. Why would you do that right now? Fill your heart with joy. He says that there will be a time when fasting will be appropriate because the bridegroom will be gone. And Jesus alludes to a time when he will be taken from them. He's talking about his his cross and um, when he will be betrayed and he'll be crucified for them. Fasting will be appropriate at at that time with with the sorrow there. But right now isn't that time. Right now is a time to celebrate and rejoice because Jesus, the groom, is here. And the reason for celebration isn't just Jesus. Because you can't just understand Jesus on his own without thinking about who Jesus is and how he fits into the, the, the promises of, of God and the story of redemption. Jesus is God's promise in the flesh. The promise to save us from our sins, to undo the curse of the fall that lies upon us, to roll back fear and suffering, to reconcile people and to bring justice. All of God's promises coalesce here in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them now that the time is here. Redemption is, has come. And so what Jesus is saying by this response is that the metric for measuring spirituality is in the heart response to God's redemption. Namely, redemption in Jesus Christ himself. Heart response there is important. That's the appropriate response. Some responses don't come from the heart. Some responses come out of fear. They come out of obligation. Or they, we just do them because they're, we've always done them. Or they're done in a rote fashion or a ritualistic way. Some responses aren't done out of a response at all. But as a, ga- as a way to, to gain attention or favor. And sometimes our responses show themselves through actions. Right? True faith shows itself through fruit, but that doesn't mean, though, that there's always a direct correlation that you can see between someone's actions and the heart. What matters is the appropriate response, the response that comes from within. And in this case, it's Jesus here is referring to not merely going through the motions of celebration, but actual celebration because it rightly understands the act of God coming to our aid. But later, there would be an appropriate sorrow, though, as he hung on the cross and a longing to see him again as he laid in the tomb. An appropriate heart response depends on the situation, but is never devoid of understanding the depth of the reality that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh for us. It mourns when trials come, but with hope because Jesus is raised from the dead. It involves a resting and an abiding in him despite difficulty. It takes comfort in him amid the storms of life. And this sort of spirituality is oftentimes seen in those who have suffered greatly or who have walked with Jesus for a very long time. And oftentimes those go hand in hand with with one another. Oftentimes they go hand in hand, particularly with those who are older, 
We have much to learn from the older saints in our midst who demonstrate that. That was the case with Liz. I had the privilege of pastoring Liz uh, in, at my prior church. And she was this dear old saint. She had this Alabama accent. And whenever you asked her how she was doing, she said, no, no, how are you? And hearing her talk about her love of God's sovereignty, it was, I mean, it was just overwhelming. It was beautiful. But at one point, though, Liz also developed cancer. And as she developed cancer, she, the, due to medicine, she was able to keep it at bay. And it looked like she was in remission until one day, about a year later, Liz said, my cancer's back. And it's more fierce than ever. And I had the privilege of seeing Liz then in her final days as the cancer continued to ravage her body. Myself and the other pastor who I served with, uh, we drove down to San Francisco where she was staying at her her daughter and son-in-law's house. Sorry, son and daughter-in-law's house. And her hospice bed, the hospital bed, was set up in this tiny cramped San Francisco apartment. And we had the privilege of sitting next to her and sitting there and just reading the Psalms with her, of crying with her, of praying with her. And the thing is, here is this this woman. She was was in one sense this husk, a shell of a person. Her voice was dry. She could only keep down um, ice chips in order to soften her voice. Uh, emaciated, weak. And I went in there, though. I mean, I have to say that that time that I had with her was one of the most beautiful, profound moments that I've had in pastoral ministry. Because the look in her eyes, though she was hollowed out and only days from going to Jesus, from passing from this earth, her eyes burned with this intensity And this flame and this glory of the Lord because she loved Jesus so much. And that was the only thing she had to hold on to at that time. I mean, it was was amazing. Here it was. I went into that room assuming that I was going to take her by the hand and lead her to the gates of heaven. I was going to accompany her to see Jesus. But I was wrong. She took my hand. And she led me to the gates of heaven. She led me to Jesus in that moment. Her deep love. And then as I stood there at the gate, and she let go and walked through. Liz may not have been able to articulate all of the finer parts of theology. She may not have been engaged in radical disciplines. But you know what? She knew God's promises for her in her word, in Jesus Christ, and she loved him so deeply. And I consider Liz to have had a measure of spirituality that I hope to share in someday. A one that's so glad in him, no matter the circumstances, and approaches even in the darkness of death, knowing the depth of Jesus' love for her. Deep or authentic spirituality doesn't just happen through bare discipline or ritual, but through a heart, though, that is drenched in Jesus and has come to know him. And the response, though, that Jesus gives here, that he highlights in particular in all this, is celebration. 
this is worth taking some time to consider. Are we a people who celebrate? What are we known for when we gather? For dourness? For extreme solemnity? Or for joy and celebration? When you approach Sunday morning and you approach coming to worship, do you come with an expectancy? Do you come with a, with a celebratory spirit? I mean, what are we communicating to our kids if they say church is boring? Can we blame them if we ourselves don't approach meeting with God with this sort of joy and enthusiasm? And this isn't merely celebration for its own sake. This is celebration because those who are in Christ, those who are God's people, have every reason to celebrate. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that the Son of God has come to dwell with us, and that he has redeemed us from our sin by by his cross, that he has taken our wrongs upon him in his death, that he was, though he was put in the tomb, he was raised again. Why? So that we would be raised with him, that we would have hope of resurrection, that we would have hope of renewal, that is as sure as he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now. See, friends, these aren't just truths that we profess, but these are the realities that ought to form us as God's people. We get up and we celebrate for lesser reasons than this, right? So why wouldn't we do the same for our eternal hope and for the renewal of all things? But Jesus though, also says that when the bridegroom's taken away, then they'll fast. And since he's ascended right now and I don't see him, then shouldn't this be the time for fasting once again? But is Jesus truly gone? He's physically absent from us right now, but what about those final words that he gave to the disciples at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, right before he was ascended? I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Or what about with his disciples, um, as recorded in, in the Gospel of John on the night of his betrayal? He says, it's better, it's to your advantage that I actually go, because then I'll send my spirit to you. Is this a time to prioritize fasting at his absence right now because he's ascended? No, it's time to celebrate because he's ascended. Jesus may be gone physically, but he is more present with us in ways than he was before because he dwells within us by his spirit and he will never depart from us because he, he is closer to us and more spiritually intimate with us than he ever could have been just simply with us here. The disciples, after the Spirit came, from, came upon them in Acts, they thought this was an incredible reason to rejoice. And they even knew what they were missing because they had seen Jesus taken from them not once but twice at the cross and the ascension. And so we then, like them, ought to celebrate. Our hope is secure. The Son of God in whom we are united by faith is right now sitting at the right hand of God and we are seated with Him as we are united to Him by the Spirit. He's already in the heavenly places. He's just waiting to bring us back with Him. The final preparations for the feast are being made. He's about ready to throw open the doors and announce, hey, it's time to party, everyone. Eternity is going to be filled with all sorts of celebration and feasting. And when we gather for worship, it is a foretaste of that eternal celebratory gathering. Our worship echoes the eternal worship of God in God's presence. And if that's going to be full of joy, then shouldn't our times also be? We are meeting with God, with the eternal God in this time. Does our worship reflect that? 
Approaching him with the reverence that he deserves doesn't mean that we ought not to also approach him with joy in this time that he also deserves. When people see us for the first time or they join us here, do our Sundays look more like funerals or do they look more like weddings? Friends, Christ isn't dead and neither are we in him. But we are married to Christ, our bridegroom, who has come to take our defiling ashes upon himself and make us beautiful with his righteousness. And the reality of our hope is revealed to the world by our celebrations. As Christians, we are people who ought to feast and be more glad than anyone else. Remember that the next time that you raise your glasses at at a feast... Remember that the next time that you fill your plates and then you enjoy the food. Remember that when you laugh with your friends because the darkness has not won and Christ is making all things new. Amen. Well, Jesus, though, finishes his response to those who are asking about spirituality by telling them that mixing him and what he brings with adherence to the old ways of religiousness doesn't work. The ways are incompatible. It's not not an appropriate response of the heart, but rather um, it's one of the actions that are performed. It's no more appropriate than trying to put the old and the new together, which is what Jesus says in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Trying to patch a hole on an old garment with a new piece of unshrunk cloth doesn't work because a new cloth will then shrink and pull away and it'll make an even worse hole than before. The new is unsuitable and inappropriate for the old. They are incompatible. And the same goes for wine and wineskins. New wine was unsuitable for old wineskins. A new wineskin would expand and it would stretch when the new wine was put in it, because that wineskin would retain its, its elasticity as the new wine then would completed its, ferment, its final fermentation there in the skin, and it would give off the gases and expand and stretch. But placing new wine in an old wineskin, a wineskin that had um, lost its, all of its elastic characteristics, it just meant that the wineskin would blow open. And this is what Jesus says is what happens when you try to fit a Jesus-centered spirituality of responding to him by your heart into the prior works ritual model of spirituality. It's inappropriate. They separate from one another. And the new way doesn't fit with the old way, and not even in part. And in the end, both will be rendered useless to you. The shirt rips and makes a bigger hole. The wineskins burst, and both the wine and the skin are lost. And melding Jesus together with, at, with, together with a works-centered spirituality ends up losing both. Jesus and his grace by faith ends up getting lost amid all the works scheme. And the old way of ritual is, is rendered useless. A spirituality that is built upon our actions is unable to hold the weight of Christ's glory. And the idea has been tried many times before, but always with little success. It happened from the earliest days of the church. That's why Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians. They wanted to mix the old ways of the law, the old works of the law, with faith in Jesus. A mixing law with gospel. And they ended up with something that wasn't the gospel of Jesus. Blending works and grace doesn't give some form of higher spirituality. 
Paul wrote that it's an entirely different gospel. And following a different gospel than that of faith in Christ alone is anathema. It's cursed. If this is what was happening in the first decades of the church, then shouldn't that tell us something about our habits and our tendencies? Spirituality isn't measured by law or works or something concrete we can point to, but by the degree that we rest in faith. People throughout history have lived in utter fear and without joy because they tried to please God by their ritual actions that have been devoid by the heart instead of a deepening love of Jesus. And sometimes it might look like a good idea. It might seem like a good idea. It's like taking a recipe for something that's so good. It's the perfect recipe, and it always turns out amazing. But adding something else that we also think is good or that we like, and trying to add it into that perfect recipe doesn't always make it better, does it? Sometimes it actually takes away from that recipe, and it makes it worse. And when we try to add anything else to form the center of our spirituality, the knowing Christ himself, then we are taking away from him. Spiritual disciplines are not wrong. Activism is not wrong. Theological knowledge is not wrong. But if we come to rely upon those to form our spirituality in themselves, instead of relying on Christ foremost and at the heart, then we run into issues. They should rather be used to bring us into a better knowledge of him that leads us to love him better or to express and manifest our heart faith to him to greater degrees. A heartfelt response to Jesus will increase our spiritual practices because it longs to know him and it will implement practices to know him better and more deeply and to reveal him more beautifully to onlookers. Fasting will be done out of the dependence upon him and seeking him more in prayer. True penitence will come out of a hatred for our sin and a desire for God's holiness and his unmerited and limitless mercy. Obedience to his laws will be sought after because he has redeemed us for those purposes. Service will become an extension of knowing his mercy and manifesting it before others. Learning will come from a wanting to apprehend his nature and to worship him more deeply. Spiritual disciplines become ways to orient our lives around knowing him and communing with him more. And feasting and celebration will be done not just for the sake of it, but out of knowing the victory of the king. And this is how we approach the table. We come to the Lord's table every week. But we don't do so out of ritualism or rote fashion or in some way that just becomes meaningless to us. We do so because every week we are celebrating the victory feast of the King. He may be absent, but His Spirit, though, is with us and is uniting us to Him as He sits enthroned at the Father's right hand. And the promises that he gives to us in the elements that we'll soon partake are ones that go down to our heart. There is no empty ritual here when we eat and when we drink by faith. Jesus is telling us to celebrate that he has died, that he has risen, and that he will come again. And so let's prepare our hearts and let's celebrate him as we will soon come to the table. Let's pray. Lord God, how is it that we could 
that we could fast in these times when the bridegroom, though, has come to take us with him. That though he may be absent right now, he is so spiritually close to us that we are united with him by your spirit. And we have every reason to celebrate that our hope that we have, the resurrection hope of Jesus, is laid in store for us, and it's in one sense already ours. And so as we worship you, as we come before you, as we live our lives before your face, Lord God, would our responses that we have then be appropriate to this time and this era of your redemption that you have put forth? And let us engage in whatever it is, whether it's our works or disciplines or our learning, whatever it is, let us engage in those by faith and by a desire to know Jesus more. That, that those actions would not form the center of our faith, but that Jesus himself would. And grow us through those things then into a deeper love of Jesus and so that others might also grow and see a deeper love of Jesus. And as we come to your table now, prepare us to be seated with Jesus our King. We pray this in his name. Amen.